0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And this section is really a continuation of the preceding section in chapter 3. And in that sense, the chapter break is a bit unfortunate. What the author continues doing here is providing reflections on and applications of Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And he does that by continuing to draw out an implication for the original audience and, by extension, for us. So here's the way chapter 3 ended. Chapter 3 ended through a series of questions that showed that the people who began with God by leaving Egypt during the Exodus... They didn't enter the rest that God had promised them in the promised land. Why? Well, because of their disobedience and their unbelief. So they started out as part of God's people in the Exodus, but they missed out on God's rest because of their unbelief and the disobedience that followed from that. And so the main point of chapter 4, 1 through 13, as he continues thinking about this, is this. Here's the main point. Be diligent to enter God's rest by believing and obeying. Be diligent to enter God's rest by being faithful to him. The author of Hebrews continues his study of Psalm 95 and the Exodus story, and now what he's going to focus on is primarily demonstrating that a rest still remains for the people of God, that the promise of the Israelites entering God's rest was not completely fulfilled when they finally entered the land of Canaan. That was only an initial fulfillment of God's promise. Uh, An ultimate fulfillment still remains for entering God's rest, and therefore followers of Jesus need to make sure they don't miss out like the initial generation of um, people during the Exodus story did, right? We need to make sure we don't miss out on God's rest. So that's the primary point he's going to make here. There is a rest, and we need to make sure we don't miss it. So he opens chapter four by saying, therefore, we must fear. Notice the therefore. Based on what he says at the end of chapter 3, based on the fact that those who who were led out of Egypt by Moses all died in the wilderness because of their disobedience and unbelief, based on that, he says, we must fear. Uh, That is, there, there needs to be a healthy awareness that just a profession of faith isn't enough. That just beginning with God isn't enough. Like, just being part of the congregation of God's people really doesn't matter if you don't actually finish the journey with God, if you don't continue in faithfulness to God. That's the point. So, we need to live with this healthy awareness that faith entails faithfulness. And so, he says, Therefore, we must fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest and that's going to be the major point he's going to make in this section he's going to actually demonstrate that there that it does remain that's the whole that's the whole implication of Psalm 95 is that since it says today don't harden your hearts like they did and miss the rest well that implies that the same thing could could still happen today Today, when the Psalm was written, today, when the author of Hebrews is writing, today, right now in 2022, or whenever we're listening to this recording, that today means it can still happen. So that's the primary thing he's going to demonstrate in this section, is that a promise remains of entering his rest. And if that's the case, we need to make sure that we, we have a healthy awareness that we need to be faithful. Like he says, We must fear if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. If it looks like any one of you has come up short of the promised land of God's rest, the ultimate promised land. So he opens chapter four saying, in essence, since there's still a promise that lies ahead, we need to live with a healthy awareness of that and not just be carefree and casual and cavalier in following Jesus and come up short. And so the rest of 4, 1 through 13, verses 2 through 13, is really going to argue that, uh, that a rest still remains, and then he's going to make the main application be, and make sure you don't miss it. So he goes on in verse 2, and he says, "...for indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they did also." who's the they, they did also, well, it's the wilderness generation, the Exodus generation. They had good news preached to them. Uh, The redemption from Egypt via the Exodus and the covenant that God made with them, well, that was the good news they had. Um, And so they had good news preached to them, and we have had good news preached to us as well. Um, So they experienced God's gift of redemption as good news, but it didn't do them any good. Why not? Well, look what he says in the rest of verse 2. We've had good news preached to us just as they did, but the word they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united with those who listened with faith. And so that Exodus generation, they received good news, but it did them no good because there was a lack of faith and faithfulness in them. Now, the current way the second half of verse two reads here in this version of the New American Standard, it represents one reading of the text. It says, they were not united with those who listened with faith. And that's one uh, reading of the text, meaning they weren't united with people like Caleb and Joshua who were trusting God and were ready to enter the promised land. They weren't joined together with them in faith. That's why they died in the wilderness, as you said at the end of chapter three. Now, that's one way to read it. But you'll see other translations take it differently. And the reason for that is because there's a textual variant that says this. It says um, that it was not united by faith in those who heard. Meaning the good news that they heard was not united with faith. They heard it, but they they didn't become those who lived in faith and faithfulness to God. And that difference actually all hinges on the form of one word the word united so in greek you can have different forms of words depending on the endings of the words and this textual variant all hinges on the form of the word united and some manuscripts have one form and some manuscripts have the other and that's what makes the difference in the textual reading now here's the thing both readings make good sense in context good sense of the argument. And both readings have good manuscript support, and that's why you'll find various translations going one way or the other, because they both work, and it's only like a couple letters difference in Greek. And the fact is, both make the same essential point. The point is, the good news that the Exodus generation heard didn't benefit them because they didn't have faith or faithfulness. That's the point. And so that's the key that the author really wants us to hear as followers of Jesus. Faith and faithfulness is necessary to benefit from the good news and to entering God's rest. So he says in verse 3, 4... We who have believed enter that rest. In other words, believers enter that rest. And the form of the word we who have believed means the believing ones. It's this sense of not just believed in the past, but continuing to believe in the present and continuing to believe on into the future. It doesn't mean we just assent to some facts or agree to some doctrinal code. It's relational and it includes loyalty and trust and faithfulness. Those who trust in God faithfully, those are the ones who enter the rest. That's the point of the first half there, verse 3. That's what he wants us to hear. Believers enter the rest. Then he he restates, he uh, re-quotes a key line from Psalm 95 to emphasize two points. They didn't enter his rest. We know why, because of their lack of faith. Um, but the rest was definitely available to them because God had rested on the seventh day. So he quotes Psalm 95 and says, Just as I said, as I swore in my anger, they shall not enter my rest, even though his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so they're not going to enter his rest, and his rest was definitely available. So the reason they, they missed it wasn't because it wasn't available. It was because they weren't believing, they weren't trusting. Well, all of this about them not entering his rest and God resting from the foundation of the world and believers entering his rest, notice the enter there in verse 3 is present tense. We who have believed enter that rest. All of that raises an important question that scholars have spilled much ink discussing. And that question is, is the rest that he's talking about here present Or is it future? Is it something believers enter into now? Or is it talking about the future that they, when they enter into glory? What what are we talking about? Some scholars have argued that in keeping with the Exodus motif, right, this journey, this pilgrimage to a future destination, that's what the rest is talking about. It's a future destination. It's the heavenly city that we're going to enter into, as the author of Hebrews says later in the book. Other scholars have contended that the emphasis on today in Psalm 95 and the present tense of enter here in verse 3, those two together, they say, suggest a present reality. Now, what's the best way to understand it? Well, the fact is, both are true. Both are true, in fact, in the book of Hebrews. We are heading to a heavenly city, as he says later, right? And we need to press on to make sure we get there. And we we have to be faithful until that final day to enter it. So there is this future orientation, even in the book of Hebrews. Um, There's also, it's also present in the book of Hebrews. Believers enter into it. And the same is true, not only in Hebrews, but in all of New Testament theology. Um, that there is a present entering into the promises of God, but there's also a more full future entering into it. What we're talking about, if you've heard this phrase before, is the already and not yet. That we've experienced already some of God's blessings and some of God's promises in part. Already we've experienced part of what God has promised us, but we haven't experienced it in full just yet. There's more still To come. Already, not yet. This shapes all of New Testament theology, and this is why it probably feels ambiguous here in Hebrews chapter 4. So, in keeping with the already and the not yet understanding of reality in the New Testament, believers enter God's rest now in part, but look forward to entering that rest fully and completely at the end. That's the way I think it works here, just as those things show up in all of the New Testament. And so he says in verse three, we who have believed enter that rest, present tense. And yet he's warning us to make sure we continue in faithfulness so that we do enter that rest. Um, it's already not yet. Now, notice the way verse three ends. It ends by, by saying uh, they, they're not going to enter his rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, referring to creation. And so to make the connection between God's works being finished and the notion of God's rest, the author of Hebrews quotes from Genesis 2-2 in verse 4. So look at verse 4. He says, For he, God, or someone, right? Uh, He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then again, In this passage, they shall certainly not enter my rest. The connection between Genesis 2-2, God rested on the seventh day, and uh, Psalm 95 is the word rest, right? They shall certainly not enter my rest, God rested. That's the connection between these two verses that brings them together. And his point simply is to say that God's rest began when he completed creation, so it was available to the Exodus generation, and yet they weren't allowed to go in, and he's already explained why, because of their unbelief. And so there are three key facts that he has uh, shown us in verses 3 through 5. That's this. Believers enter the rest. The Exodus generation, God's people, failed to enter the rest. God's rest has already begun, Those three facts are really the main things that he has said to us in verses 3 through 5. Now, having clarified then those facts, he's now ready to make his main point. Therefore, there's still a rest that remains for God's people. So look at verse 6. He says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, it's there, it's available, they didn't enter it, but But it's still available to be entered into since a rest remains for some to enter it. And those who previously had good news preached them failed to enter because of disobedience. The Exodus generation. He again sets a certain day today. That's how this section of Psalm 95 begins. Today, if you hear his heart, right? So there's a certain day. So he sets a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, quoting Psalm 95 again. And so that emphasis on today, that emphasis on David through the Psalm saying today, and David lived 400 years after the Exodus generation. And so today is a long time afterwards. And therefore, it's he's appealing through the psalm, Psalm 95, make sure you don't make the same mistake, which implies that there's still a rest to be entered into. It's still possible to miss it because of hard hearts. So if you hear God's voice today, don't miss out by hardening your hearts like they did. That's the point. And so he says in verse 8, 4, if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua is the one that led um, God's people into the promised land. Moses dies, Joshua assumes the reins of leadership over uh, God's people in the wilderness, and he's the one that leads them into the promised land. So, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not, that is, David would not have spoken of another day after that. So, uh, In other words, if entering into the promised land under Joshua was the final word on entering God's rest, then the writer of Psalm 95 would have never spoken of needing to make sure you enter into it today. So the word today speaks to a new generation, the psalmist generation, David's generation, and their need to respond faithfully to God and thus enter his rest. And what was true during the days of the psalmist is still true during the days of the Hebrews and is still true today. Indeed, as long as there is any day called today, the the author of Hebrews is arguing, there's still a need to be faithful and thereby enter into God's rest. That's his point. Joshua didn't... the, The entering into the promised land under Joshua wasn't the final and ultimate word of entering God's rest. Otherwise... David wouldn't have written in Psalm 95 about entering his rest. Therefore, the conclusion must be there's still a rest that remains and we need to make sure we enter it. And so the author of Hebrews says in verse 9, Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Like there was a rest in David's day uh, and there's still a rest needed to enter today. We have not as God's people reached the final end of that. Uh, We need to make sure each day, each today, we're entering into that. And so consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The idea of the phrase Sabbath rest is not merely ceasing from activity, but the word Sabbath, by its very nature, includes also the idea of celebration and praise to God. It refers to the observance of the Sabbath which included rest, but it was also a day of celebration, joyful rest and praise and celebration for God and his goodness and his provision and all he's done for his people, right? And so when he says there remains a Sabbath rest and he adds that new idea to rest, Sabbath, he's thinking in terms of this idea of entering into, uh, at least in part now, someday ultimately in full, this joy-filled praise and rest, that God makes available to his people as their good father and their good God who takes care of them. So then that helps us see the connection to verse 10. Just as God rested and celebrated his week of creation back in Genesis chapter one and two, so the one who enters into God's rest can celebrate with joyful rest in the here and now. Look at verse 10. For the one who has entered God's rest, his rest, has himself also rested from his works, just as God rested from his works, right? That's the idea of verse 10. Like, God rested on the seventh day and celebrated the goodness of his works. And so God's people enter into his rest, and that means resting from their works. And so, verse 10 is really a brief description of the effect of entering into the rest. And God's rest in creation is the very rest we're entering into as believers. And on that occasion, God rested from his works. And so the same is true for those who enter into God's rest now, at least true in part now, and will be ultimately and finally true fully at the end. I think in this context of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus invites his followers to enter into Rest. Look what Jesus says. Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so believers, even now, Followers of Jesus, Matthew 11 says, even now, can experience rest for their souls. Um, the, the striving and the uh, laboring that is pictured in the picture of a yoke here, Matthew 11, is replaced by ease and lightness as they enter into God's rest. And so that's what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 is talking about, that resting means uh ceasing from their own works. Now, having made that point, he moves on to applying that point specifically to his reader. So, Hebrews 4.11 says, therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest, since there's this grand promise of entering his rest, since it's this rest of soul by which we cease from our own works. Let's make every effort. Let's be diligent is the idea. Let's pour ourselves into, ironically, making every effort of entering into that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. Whose example? Those in the desert, right? Those in the Exodus generation. That's the example we've been playing off of all through chapters three and four thus far. And so We want to make sure we're not like them, but we make every effort to enter that rest. And so entering into the rest is not opposed to effort. (laughs) Uh, And yet what we find in making the effort is that there is rest for our souls. So let's make every effort to enter that rest so that we won't fall. We won't miss out by following the same example of disobedience. And what's the basis for this? Well, it's the word of God. Um, That is, he's been explaining God's Word to them, Psalm 95, and then bringing in other Old Testament texts to amplify and explain Psalm 95. So he's been basically laying out a passage of Scripture over the last several paragraphs to them. And so that's the whole basis for this appeal. Uh, That's the whole basis for this instruction is Psalm 95 and other passages of Scripture. So make every effort to enter that rest because God's word, the scriptures continue to speak today. That's what he's going to say in verses 12 and following. And so look at verse 12. He says, make every effort in verse 11, for notice the four, he's explaining the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and, And intentions of the heart. And so that's the basis for this appeal. That's the basis for this instruction. He has laid out God's word to them in Psalm 95 and other passages. God's word continues to speak, and it's powerful. So we need to make sure we listen to it. We hear it, and we heed it. Now, let me just clarify a couple things here out of verse 12 when he says, "'For the word of God is living and active.'" Um, Some have attempted to link this to Jesus, right? Like the word of God is Jesus and he's the one that's living and active. But the context and the logical connection to the context with the word for makes it clear what he's talking about. He's talking about Psalm 95 and the other Old Testament texts that he's been quoting for the, the last two chapters. That's what he's talking about. So we're talking about the scriptures. So the word of God here is the scriptures, And the scriptures, he says, are living and active. They're alive. Um, And it emphasizes that although it was written in the past, like when the author of Hebrews is writing, Psalm 95 is a thousand years old. Um, The Exodus happened 1400 years prior to uh, the writing of the book of uh, Hebrews. And so It was written in the past, but even though that's the case, it still speaks today. That's the idea of being living and active. It still speaks. In fact, in Jewish teaching of the time, God's word was regularly portrayed as active in creating and in judging, and in that sense, it's dynamic, and it's alive, and it's powerful. That's his point. So God's word, the scriptures, are living, they're active, they're dynamic, they're alive, they still speak today. Then there in verse 12, he uses the imagery of a, sh- a sword uh, to drive home the fact that the word of God has power, right? That it, it penetrates uh, and it divides. It's so sharp and it's so, so precise that it can divide between soul and spirit. It can decide, the, uh, divide between joints and marrow. It's even able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The idea is that it it penetrates to uh, and. and separates out the most uh, delicate of divisions and the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the power, the penetrating power and uh, the alive and powerful nature of God's word. Then he goes on in verse 13 to say, since this is God's word and since it has this power, what it ultimately brings before us is a message from God and and there's no one hidden from God's sight. So look at verse 13. He says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, from God's sight. He's the one who spoke these words, and God doesn't miss anything. In fact, he says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Uh, the penetrating power of God's word really renders Every single one of us, every person that has ever lived and ever will live, totally exposed and defenseless before the presence of God, to whom we all have to give an account for our lives. That's the point of verse 13. Like, our lives are open, laid bare before God. He sees it all, even down to, as he said in verse 12, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our lives are open. And laid bare. The idea of laid bare uh, is this idea of defenseless. It's like laid out. And this word was sometimes used like in a wrestling or boxing context where a person's just laid out and open and defenseless. That's the idea. Our lives are visible and exposed and uh, defenseless before God. Like we're completely accountable to Him and nothing misses His sight. And we have to give an account of our life to Him. And so. As he winds down this section here, urging us to make sure we enter God's rest, he's done so with this reminder of saying, look, I've just spoken God's word to you, and God's word is alive and powerful, and it it reminds us that we're accountable to the living God for what we do with our life. And so Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 13, really calls us to be mindful of continuing to be faithful to God. Um, loyal to Jesus to the end, uh, as one scholar described it, not switching teams. Don't switch teams. Like that's the risk that the original readers were in. Like they were they were considering switching teams, going back to Judaism, right, and switching teams. And and we don't want to do that. We want to be faithful to the end. We want to hear Jesus called to come to Him and find rest in Him, and we want to remain true to Him. Uh, so that we can enter that rest completely and fully someday. So continuing to be faithful. And the reality is, as this passage ends, that we all have to give an account of our life before God. Our life is a sacred trust from God. We're accountable to him for how we use it. And so our job is to be loyal to him and faithful to him with the whole of our life hey it's john and before we leave this session i just wanted to say that the listeners commentary is a listener supported bible teaching project that is made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at the link down in the notes below, or you can swing to listenerscommentary.com. You can uh, click the Give button, or you can sign up for the Study Hub. Either way is a great way to donate and support this ministry. Thanks a ton for your support.